address a couple of things. Let's go back to, let's begin in Ephesians and address one thing that was brought up that needed to be clarified and expanded on. And uh, you know I'm really good at doing those things, clarifying and expanding. <clears throat> Ephesians 6. Do you know what Ephesians 6 1 says, Daniel, little Daniel? You don't know. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. You know what Ephesians 6 2 says? Joshua? Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise. Hmm. You know what Ephesians 6 3 says, Anahi? That your days will be long. All right, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Sorry, I misquoted that one a little bit. So that was more to our children, but this is a parenting class, not how to be a good child, although I've been trying to invest your children in that process because we recognize they have a role to play. They have to be responsive to parenting, and we're going to talk a little bit about how they respond. And the question was asked about the next verse, which says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Then what really is involved in provoking your child to wrath? And um, again, because we just got done with children obeying your parents, that they're going to do it in the Lord, that this is right, that they're going to honor their father and mother, that they have a promise from God that they can bank on uh, if they do so. Then we come to this and we say, well, they have responsibility, I have responsibility. And so... Uh, what is it? Is, what is this provoking them to wrath? So we have to stop just a little bit and define a couple of terms. Provoke. Uh, when you use the word provoke, you're talking about something negative. Would you agree with that? That you don't usually say, I'm going to provoke you to do something good. Is generally, I am doing something that's going to get your goat. I'm doing something that it makes your life hard. It is something that um, uh, is antagonistic almost. So what we're talking about is an antagonistic sort of activity and that produces wrath in your children. Now wrath is a very different term. Um, we're not saying dads do not provoke a temper tantrum in your child. That is not the word wrath here. The word wrath is not about their feelings. We are not, we have associated wrath with anger and anger with feelings and that is not really the biblical use of this word. So it's not, don't make your kids mad. Because if that were the case, you'd be tiptoeing around your house all the time. Because just about anything can make your kids mad. I don't want to eat my vegetables. Be quiet and eat your vegetables. Now I'm mad. All right? So <laughs> that's not what it's saying. It's not saying don't cause your child to have a temper tantrum. Because that's on them. That's on a child. A child's lack of control over their feelings and their words, we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, is engaging in rebellion. And that is dishonoring. So they already have a command to honor their father and mother, which does not give them permission to have a temper tantrum. A temper tantrum needs to be addressed as an item of discipline. All right, and we're going to talk about that a lot more when we get to the idea of growing in favor with men. Because that's a social issue, okay? Temper tantrum is a social issue, not so much a wisdom issue, and hopefully they need to grow and learn to control that and to moderate that and recognize it. So we're not talking about their feelings when we talk about provoking our children to wrath. We are talking about something much more substantial than that. This is not a temper tantrum. This is not, I'm mad, I didn't get my way, I'm going to pout. It's not pouting. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. So let's back up in this book, and that's always a good place to go for definitions, is in the book you're reading, which is the Bible. So you're reading the book, and so when I write a book, uh, when I write and I use a term, I try to define it very early on in my writing so that you know where I'm from, coming from when I use this term the rest of the book, and, and you don't, can't insert your own ideas here. So let's just look back into chapter 5, and Look at this concept of wrath. Let's start, um, let, because it, and it talks about children all through here. Let's start in verse 1, and we'll just work our way. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So now, 
Part of being a child is being an imitator of your father. Oh, you think that has something to do with this? I think so. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given us his as offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Uh, it goes through and, and talks about a whole bunch of wickedness, uh, fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous person who is an idolater, covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we're supposed to be imitators of God in verse 1. We are supposed to um, control our tongue and our activities and our desires of our heart. That's covetousness is in your heart. I want this, I want that. Surprise, you hear children say that a lot? I want, I want, me, me, me. Well, that's all the old things said they should be thankful. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Teacher. Thank you, thank you, thank you. They should be thankful. Um, but we want to really focus in on verse 6 because this gives us a definition of wrath. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So who are the sons of disobedience? We're not talking about the heathen. We're talking about Israel who, ha who spoke deceptive, empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So you have people coming in to the church, that this is written to the church of Ephesus. Don't let these people coming in to you speak empty words to you and deceive you. They are the sons of disobedience. They are not walking in the light. They are not being imitators of God. They are not avoiding covetousness. In fact, that's one of the ways we recognize them. And so we have all this list. So um, this term, provoking your children to wrath, isn't out of nowhere. He's saying, listen, what provoked God to wrath? Well, it was empty words, which are, I'm going to use a, a term you're more familiar with, uh, that are hypocritical. It is hypocrisy that provokes wrath. What makes God more angry than anything? All right? Is people who claim to be his representatives, but aren't. And that's why when you have a false prophet, Israel said, stone him. I didn't put those words in his mouth. Stone him. Lest my wrath comes upon you all. Um, it is that hypocriticalness of saying, we are Israel, we are Israel, and God says, no, you're going to get my wrath, and here comes the Assyrians, and here comes the Babylonians, and, and you won't repent. And so it is the condition of being a son of disobedience and presenting yourself as though you are a teacher when in fact you are disobedient yourself. This provokes God to wrath. And I would contend that that is the definition we should use when we get to chapter 6. Of how do you provoke your children to wrath? Well, you do what these people do. You say empty words to them. Why are they empty words and dece deceitful? Because you're not living them. You're trying to tell them to live one way while you live an entirely different way. Now, we're not talking about your personal struggle with sanctification and, and your war against sin in your life, because we all have that. You know, I have those areas that I struggle in, that I have to get a control of, that I have to confess we're not talking about, we're talking about a whole way of life that is exposed, and that's one other thing that's, that's exposed um, by the light, because he goes on and talks about that, that uh, the, the works of darkness um, are exposed by the light. There, there's no fellowship between the light and the darkness. There's no consistency. And so when you're teaching your children uh, and telling them to do this and do that and, and don't do that and don't do that while you all the while are doing it in front of them 
unrepentantly, you are provoking them to wrath. Now, wrath is not anger, just anger. It is much deeper than this, and it is, you can say, well, that's frustrating. No, it is a matter of, of, um, of rejection and displeasure um, and judgment. It, it's, it's right up there with, I hate to use the word hatred, um, because we associate that with emotions too, but it's with a resolve against you. When God resolves himself against you, you are in deep trouble. Would you agree? All right, the, the outpouring, first outpouring that we really find in the Bible of God's wrath is the flood. We're going to talk about that in a couple of Sunday mornings uh, as an example of, of um, God's judgment, what judges the world, and it wasn't Jesus. Uh, and so we have here judgment, that they're going to be provoked to this, this opposition to everything you say. I'm going to be against you. When we talk about God's wrath, it, is, it involves certain his anger, involves this hatred of your sin, but it is a resolve against you because of your empty words. You say these things, but they don't mean anything because they're never put into practice in your life. Willfully, um, not just because you're a weak sinner, but because you just don't make it your practice. You're an open hypocrite. And that kind of hypocrisy, children see right through. And this goes along with what we said, um, that if you're going to, this is the E, right? This is when I used this verse, was in the E, the example. You need to be an example to your children. Why? Because if you're not, it will give them a settledness against what you're telling them. And that is wrath. That displeasure. They won't be pleased to follow after Jesus. They won't be pleased with what, what, what they hear in World Life Clubs or what they read in the Bible, even if you read it in the Bible, because it is inconsistent. And when you see pastor's kids and deacon's kids and churchgoer kids that go up and as soon as they get into uh, high school, you see a lot of rebellion, and as soon as they can, they get out of the house, you'll never see them in church again. Okay. Now, we talked about they have a will. They have authority to do that. They have that permission, if you will, from God. That, that, not permission so much as capacity from God to make that choice. But many times when we interview them, when I talk to them, say, what's going on? I was like, eh, you know. And we go to church and we're one thing. And then we come home and, you know, it's just screaming and yelling and this and that. And, and they see right through it. They see right through the hypocrisy of it, and it gives them a resentment against the truth, against God, against the light, against being an imitator of God. Because you should be the representative of God. I think we said that very early on. You're the representation of God to them, especially very young children. You are their God in that sense that you're the one they want to imitate, and so you need to put these things in practice. So fathers are singled out here. Okay, they tend to be more detached from the child rearing process. They tend to give more commands and don't expect anyone in the family to, to challenge them in their own behavior. Right? That tends to be the dad. Mother's a little more nurturing, a little more relational, a little more involved, and... But, uh, and, and tend not toward this, but they're, they're fully capable of being hypocrites as well. This isn't a male trait. Uh, this is just a sin trait. And so, do not provoke. And how do I know that that fits into this verse? Because of the second half of the verse. Provoking your children to wrath is contrasted to something else. Instead of that, instead of provoking your children to wrath, instead, this is the opposite of it, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so you are not just putting unreasonable expectations on them to be holy while you're unholy. You're not going to sit there and preach at them while you're a hypocrite and living, you know, don't you ever do this. You know, you're sitting there and chugging down, you know, six beers at a time. Don't you ever do this when you grow up. Well, of course they're going to do it when they grow up. They're going to be imitators of you. 
And they're going to hate what you say. And they're going to do what you've done. They're going to become what you are, not what you say. Because they're imitators. And this is the pattern that we have in, in Ephesians 5. So the alternative is that you are engaged in rearing them, bringing them up, bring them up in the training. That's discipline. That's the D in our diaper, discipline, that you are going to give them that discipline life that you have. At whatever level of discipline you have, you're going to train them at it. It is really hard to train people without participating with them. It's a lot easier to train people when you're right there with them. You might not, you know, if you're training a runner and you're an old person, you might not be able to run with them, but you can bicycle beside them, you can get in a car and drive beside them, and, you know, you're... you're yeah, you see all those images from Chariots of Fire where the coach is there with a megaphone driving alongside yelling at this guy and he's got to run sucking up the, the exhaust of the car. But um, you got to do it with them. You can't just say, here's the workout and, and while you're sitting there, you know, in a lazy boy watching TV, here's the workout, go do it. You know, I'm, I'm a fat, lazy slob and I expect you to be this disciplined athlete. Well, spiritually, that's what many times we're doing. We're going to train them and then the last section tells you that you're going to make them mad. Because that last word is in the training and admonition. What does it mean to admonish someone? Correct them. You're doing this wrong. And we live in a society that doesn't like admonition. We don't want to be ever admonished. No one should be, we, we don't want to give people permission to tell us that we're wrong. Don't judge me. Don't tell me I'm doing it wrong. Don't judge me, right, Andrea? That was one of Andrea's favorite terms when we were first met her. She had, she had like several three-word lines that she was just known for, and that was one of them. And um, what is that saying? You don't have permission to correct me. And that is part of godly training, is you're not just telling them the right thing to do. You're also saying, don't do this, but you're training them up. You're rearing them. You're doing it with them. You're coming alongside them. Do not provoke them to wrath by giving them a taste of it and then doing the opposite. Do not give them empty words. Don't be a son of disobedience. And I take that chapter 5, verse 6, definition, and I bring it into chapter 6, verse 4, and I go, oh, well, that's what it means. And so I'm not going to come in and deceive your children with empty words because you are in disobedience. That's what makes God angry. Why don't you think it's going to make your kids angry? It's, and it's a conglomeration of frustration and, and just knowing that, well, you're a hypocrite. You say these things, but you don't live them. And so that provokes your children to have, be displeased by Christianity. Because you give it lip service, but your words are, don't mean anything. You say you should do these things, but they don't know that you do do those things. Okay? So that's the full expansion of that concept. Okay? Any questions on that? So it's okay if your kids get mad at you. You have not violated Ephesians 6.4, dads. It is not okay if they get resentful at your lack of walking the walk and just talking the talk. That's your fault. If you're not following through your teaching with obedience. Don't make your words empty. They will see that difference. Okay? Be an example of wisdom. Any, any questions, comments on that? Okay. Uh, don't be a hypocrite in front of your kids. Be an example. Uh, and then you will not provoke them to be uh, reject or be displeased with Christianity or judge it and say, I want to reject. I want to, I it, it's worthless. Don't be the cause of that in your children. All right, we had another question, and, and I might need some clarification on this. The other one I want to address very quickly. Um, what about the relationship my child 
and there's two different directions of this. What happens when I, they get conflicting information? Uh, and conflicting, and, also, and even from authorities. How do they relate to authorities, particularly when those authorities in their life are not in agreement with my parenting according to the Bible? And that can be some very close things like grandparents and uncles and aunts and, and um, teachers uh, and people like that of influence in their life. So your child is going to come across these people who are not godly. Okay? And they're going to have, and then on that list, you could also put peers because frighteningly enough, your children will start thinking other children for advice instead of you. They will go to peers for advice instead of you. And by the way, that doesn't change. I see young moms going and talking, trying to give advice to each other, and you don't go to the mature mom who already raised her kids successfully. That's who you should be getting parenting advice from, not from your peer. You should be getting it from someone that's older. But um, your child is going to be exposed to this. And, and uh, what, is, what are some of the solutions? What are some of the things we need to take into account? And a lot of this is, depends upon the age. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to really pick on my two daughters here. They're going to be a little upset, but that's okay. Um, number one, when they are very young, the, um, the best thing to do is to raise them yourself. Um, when you're sending a kid to daycare because you're working full-time, um, you're going to have issues. Um, you don't know the daycare workers. Um, and for my girls, is, they have a little different situation because their daycare is me. And they have issues, I'm sure. Okay, because I call it apple juice and, and Trevor's dad calls it apple juice and keeps correcting him at home. <laughs> And that's my fault, because I have an influence there. Now, that's benign. That's, that's not towards sin and rebellion and things like that. Um, that's just a funny little thing we do at our house. Um, and we, and it, my kids grew up that way with other words and things like that, because I like them to keep engaged. Um, but what happens when they aren't godly? When you have family members that aren't saved? Um, who want to engage your child um, as this authority figure. I'm uncle, I'm aunt, I'm grandma, I'm grandpa, um, or great-grandpa even. And, I, and they have, you want your child to respect that authority, but you also recognize that how they're going to be influenced by them is not going to be according to the principles of God's word. Number one solution is mom should stay home and raise their children. Because then all that child care issue is going to be mute. That's the number one solution to that. And it's not that your kids can't ever go out, but if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're taking care of them, you can monitor that, and, and they won't be spending uh, 40 hours a week somewhere else. And I was in Virginia when I was a teenager, and, and we had a Christian daycare. And you might say, well, it's a Christian daycare, and they're going to get Christian principles. They're not going to get what you think of as Christian principles because it's an environment that isn't natural. That is not a natural environment. Um, you, to have one adult or maybe two adults and 12 to 20 kids, that's not natural. Your child is going to learn stuff from the other kids like this. Boom, 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 boom. So now you're not only worried about the adult being a Christian, but all the other influences in all the other children's lives. And that's going to happen when they go to school too, which is why I'm not a big advocate of, of the schooling format. That we do it, and we throw all these kids in one class with one or two teachers. It's kindergarten, a couple of them usually. Um, because it's unnatural. It is an unnatural environment that promotes sin because the lowest denominator for that environment will be the one that is exposed to the most evil at home. Correct? They're the ones going to bring it into the classroom and these little learning machines called children are going to pick up on it. 
They're going to pick up on that language. They're going to pick on the, up on that behavior. They're going to pick up. They're going to watch. They're going to observe and say, oh, that. And so it's not just authorities. It's also peers. And so I'm a big advocate of raise your children. Um, you had them, you raise them. <laughs> My wife's famous line. Um, and that is the ultimate solution. When that isn't there, isn't available, and you're forced into these environments, number one, um, Put it off as long as possible. In other words, make sure your child is as old as possible and because when they're very young, they don't always understand. They can't. They don't have the capacity to uh, filter what's coming out. And it's okay for you to say, this, grandma does it this way, but that's not at our house. You know, Pap-Pap does it this way, but that's not here. That's when you're at his house. And it's okay for you, by the way, to go to grandma, go to uncle, go to auntie, and say, please don't do this with my child. I don't want them sitting in front of the TV all day. I don't want them exposed to this. And, and you can even provide them the materials. Here's some books for you to read to them. Here's some videos or whatever I, I feel comfortable with them watching. Um, but not all day. And if that's beyond your capacity, then I'd rather my child not be here. They might be offended at that, but there's something much more important than the feelings of grandma at stake here. Because your child is going to pick up techniques, and, and you, you can't believe how fast they can accommodate and understand environments. We see it in World Life Clubs. Within three weeks of being in a club, that's just Three weeks, that's six hours, a child understands what is required of him here compared to at home. And a child misbehaves and loud and obnoxious at home is quickly understands that doesn't work here and they accommodate themselves to this environment and they line up on the line and they run when they're told to run and they sit down when they're told to sit down and because they get it. They're accommodators. It is in their nature to look around what all the other kids are doing and to do it. They're going to do that when they're 13. They're going to do that when they're 21. Look around. What's everyone else wearing? I've got to wear that. They're 25 and going to a job interview, and they're like, I'm overdressed because no one else is dressed up. No, they're underdressed. But we all look around and compare ourselves, don't we? And so... Um, they're going to accommodate to whatever the, the environment, and so we want them in environments that uh, they'll figure it out. So what's the danger? Is, is um, they can figure out that your home is not grandma's home. It doesn't take long. You bring them home, you say, this isn't grandma's house. That's not acceptable here. And you even discipline them for behavior that's acceptable at grandma's. But when you start doing that, you need to go to grandma and say, you know, I take them home and I discipline them. Because this isn't allowed in my house. That kind of word isn't allowed. That speech, that activity, that behavior isn't allowed in my house. And it would be really helpful to me if you wouldn't allow it in your house. Can you impose that? No, because you walk out the door and they're going to do whatever they want with your kids. Which is why you should raise them yourself. Okay? Our society... And the concept that you have to have two incomes to have a livelihood um, has destroyed parenting. Because the state doesn't want you to parent your children. They want to take that responsibility so that they can put their ideas in your child's mind. That's why this big push for, for now, uh, kindergarten isn't when you're supposed to bring them. Now you're supposed to bring them when they're three. Right? That's the big push. Three and four-year-old, preschool. And then we'll provide it free. And every parent that doesn't really want to do a parent, oh, the government will take my kids for longer, sooner. Oh, good. I'll be free of them more. Because we have to have two incomes to have a good livelihood. Because we need this level of this, 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 this. Because our standard of living is way up here. Instead of at one income, we default parenting. Parenting is put. So when you have that problem, you ultimately you got to pray about it. You're going to have to realize these authorities are going to be there. As they get older, how can I engage them? By the time they are 12 years old, 
they should already be able, which means you started like about when they were eight. How old are you, Daniel? Nine. So you should already start, be starting on this to be able to distinguish between authorities. <coughs> so um, we did send our children to public school for a season, and uh, they would come home with these things, and we would have frank conversations with them. You know, I know you're going to be learning this, this, and this, but those things you're learning at school aren't true. That doesn't give you the permission to go in there and be obnoxious brat to your teacher. You're going to treat your teacher with respect, and you're going to listen and maybe even fill in the answer they want, but we're going to tell you the truth. Now, let's go back to Ephesians because we're here, and I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Um, we are going to be walk in love, it says in verse 2. Uh, there's another place. Oh, here we go. Um, we left off at verse 8. Few once in darts, but now you are, walk, are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather, expose them. I would contend with you that as they get exposed to other authorities who say something different than the Bible, you have a responsibility to lead them into truth and expose error. And still call them to honor the authorities in their life. And you say, well, that's a tense, yes. It's a hard thing to do. And so my child, and this is going to happen, by, by 12 years old, they should be able to, to understand that principle that I can disassociate honoring someone from the fact that they're feeding me information that is unbiblical, okay? And so, or that I don't like, or that my dad disagrees with. We can distinguish that. I'm not going to be hypocritical, but I can still honor my teacher at school and still disagree with them. You can honor people you disagree with. Did you know that? Please tell a few Democrats that you have in your, around you, okay? Because they are very dishonorable towards a person they disagree with that's running our country. And that's unacceptable. It's ungodly. It's evil. So I want to teach my child by the time they're 12 years old that you don't have to agree with every single thing to honor somebody. And so, and I, and I press this, and, and it gets tested, doesn't it? And so uh, my kids were in sports, and, and uh, the coach would say something. My kids would gripe about it. I said, no, you do what they say. They're the coach. Well, you, I said, it's not my philosophy of coaching, but it is theirs, and they are the coach of the team, not me. Honor your coach. Do that, and if you want to add to it, if you want to... Uh, uh, supplement it, um, then do so. Same thing with teacher. What is your job? Teach them the truth. Teach them righteousness. We talked about that already as wisdom. And expose the darkness. Show its error. Don't just say that's wrong because pastor says so. Expose it. Show it how it's wrong. Show how foolish it is. And I, I regularly have conversations with my children, especially around the dinner table, just exposing the garbage that they're getting access to through friends, through school, through TV, just exposing it. Well, you know where that's going to end. Where is that going to take you? Um, yeah, you're going to start here, and then you're going to graduate to this, 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 and pretty soon, and we'd pull out pictures out of the newspaper. Look, here's this person before drugs, and here's their person after drugs. What's the drug? Alcohol. See what they did to them? Do you want to look like this when you're 30? You look like a 50-year-old? Dried up prune. And you're only 30 because of drugs and alcohol. Because of small, And so we expose the darkness. You cannot insulate your child from all these things in this world. But you can expose these things. Expose them. Which means you have to be engaged. You have to be aware. You have to be attentive. And yes, you need to expose it. And it's okay to say, um, you know, grandpa so-and-so doesn't trust in Jesus and he's going to say bad words that we don't use and, and uh, we're still going to love him because he's our grandpa but we're going to pray for him because he doesn't know the truth. And whenever grandpa introduces something 
that's evil, wicked, and against God's word, we're going to expose it. Well, that's not true. That's not righteous. That's not, that's not uh, what this passage says. It's not good. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Okay? And so use these as teaching moments. So that by their time they're 12 years old, they're still going to struggle with this, but they can understand the concept, I can honor someone I disagree with. I can still treat authorities with respect, even while I recognize that they are feeding me false information. They're feeding me things that are ungodly. Um, Now, I am going to give you one other thing, because this is wisdom we're talking about, but I just want to take it into a moral category as well. Okay? Um, You do not, you cannot underestimate what an unbeliever is capable of doing to your child. I don't care how closely related they are to you, you cannot underestimate the depravity of the lost. Do not ever underestimate it. Too many children have been abused in many different ways, not just sexually, but but physically and mentally abused by family members, by uncles, aunts, grandmas, grandpas, cousins. So when you leave a child in the home of unbelievers, that's a real risk you are engaging in, and you need to recognize that. What precautions are in place? What's going on there? Okay, and I, I think I mentioned that one week that I, I asked my kids, where do they get to go spend at the friend's house? Nowhere where there's alcohol, and they, they basically, their answer was nowhere. <laughs> we didn't hardly get to go anywhere. Because I know my community, and I know the depravity of man. I confront with it all the time. And I don't underestimate what ungodly people can, are capable of doing. And if there's alcohol in the environment, it, it's just multiplied worse. So I can't stress strongly enough that um, y- you're creating the problem. Now that you have the problem, because we all have some family members that are unbelievers, Um, you're going to have to address it by taking precautions and by um, making limitations. And and I I know I took it to the extreme, but even just if you have a relative that thinks that buying everything for a child is securing their relationship with that child, um, that, that is very dangerous. Very dangerous. Because they are setting your child up that whoever gives them more stuff loves them more. And that fits right into the foolishness that is bound up in the heart of a child. You're supposed to be driving it out from them and these people are reinforcing that foolishness. And so we need to be very cautious in doing that. Okay? Any questions, comments on that? Probably not the answer you really wanted to hear, but that's the facts. One last category question was, what do we do with the false information? <laughs> and, oh, and also, can we distinguish between rebellion and just confusion? Uh, and rebellion and inability, um, because I can't do it. And uh, this is kind of precious to me, um, because I've seen it put into place you know, this child is rebellious, rebellious. I don't know what's wrong with this kid. Well, they weren't rebellious. They just couldn't hear you because they were profoundly deaf. You know, and poor little Oliver Leishman got creamed until they realized he was deaf at, what, three years old, four years old. They're like, he won't obey, he won't obey. Well, he can't because he can't hear you. And we had one of those in our home too, you know, and he's oppositional defiance. Well, he couldn't hear half of what we said. And, and uh, it was resolved. Some of it was resolved. There's still rebellion there, but not the nature they talked about. So what about when it is, how do we distinguish between I am choosing not to do it or I don't understand what you require of me or I can't do it? 
And uh, this, again, is, varies a little bit over age, but you should be able to distinguish it by their attitude. You should know the attitude of a child, and you should, have, uh, you should be able to see those differences. A rebellion is going to always be a, and I love the biblical term for this, what is it? Stiff-necked. It is the unwillingness to try and learn or to try and accommodate you or try to please you, an unwillingness to please you. And if they get frustrated because they're trying and failing, you do not have a rebellious child. You have a frustrated child because either your demands are too excessive on them or they're just not quite there yet in their mental capacity, in their maturity to meet what you're asking them. You're asking them to act like an eight-year-old when they're two. Okay, well, I don't compare a two-year-old to an eight-year-old. And that's why they run around and say, well, that's just terrible twos. Just leave them alone. They're terrible two. You don't have to discipline them being two. Um, don't, don't discipline them like they're eight. Discipline them like they're two and just... Find that level. What is a two-year-old supposed to be like? Well, there's a reason we call them the terrible twos. Because it's terrible. Okay, they're mobile, and they've learned that they have a choice of whether to listen to you or not. And they're inquisitive to the nth degree. That's not all just rebellion. But stiff-neckedness, being stiff-necked, is about being unwilling to try to please or to try to learn when they get rigid. And sometimes they will physically get rigid, especially young ones. They'll physically, and even an infant you can tell, right, when they are fighting you while you're holding them. They arch their back and all this. Well, are they hungry? Are they uncomfortable? Are they tired? Or are they just went down to play? Well, I go through the checklist. Boom, boom, boom. When they get older, that checklist changes. Correct? Why are you stiff-necked? Why are you fighting this? Well, I don't like it. Well, that doesn't matter. The question is, do you want to please me? Do you want to obey? Do you want to please God? Um, and we engage in that to draw out, is this frustration or is this rebellion? Is this, I don't, I'm confused, I don't understand, or is this, I don't want what you are offering? Remember, they have a choice. You cannot force this into them, but you do have an opportunity to put them in an environment to bring it. And so there is a difference between that, and you need to recognize that, and uh, a, you're not going to compromise to the point of, of not training a child and not uh, discipline them. No, we're not going to get to that level, but we're going to say, okay, if you can't do that, what can you do? If this is too much, it's not that they don't do anything. Do not go from that. You either do all this or nothing. No, there's somewhere in between that they are able to do and, and can do. And we need to find that and then step it up very gradually. Well, now you're capable of this. You're capable of that. You're capable of that. And I see too many mothers, it seems to be especially mothers, that won't raise the bar as it goes, and they're walking around, you know, cutting up food for a 13-year-old, you know, it's like, what are you doing? They're 13, you know, they don't need you to make up their plate for them, for crying out loud, they can go, they can make their own plate up, and cut their own food. You're raising adults, not children, you're trying to raise them into adults, which means you're going to grade them up, so if you're trying to have them behave like little adults when they're four, they're going to get frustrated. And don't confuse that frustration with rebellion, but treat that four-year-old like you want them to be at five. So you want to keep your goals for them a little bit higher than their capacity. In other words, I always want growth. And I'm always going to stretch. I want them to stretch. I have this website I was reading, and I was really excited because they, they said something. I've been so glad to hear it um, because I was afraid they were kind of 
foo-foo and puffy and psych thing. It was a playground company. And their statement was, without risk, your child cannot develop skills. Yeah. Oh, no, it wasn't like that. Right. They need to have risk in their life. You need to lift them and, and you, need to be, you need to urge them and, and let them take risks. You need to, how did, if you always carry a kid around, will they learn to walk? You know this inherently that they have to fall down. How many times? Hundreds. If you never risk them falling, then you will risk them never learning to walk. And this little, these people go into third world countries and use tires to build playgrounds. And they had a big thing on their website. Without risk, your child cannot develop skills. Because they'll never be able to test their limits. And so our playgrounds are not risk-free. The only reason we have risk-free environments attempted is because of lawyers. Risk-free environments are horrible for children. Completely horrible. And that's from the microscopic level of germs, because now we're discovering that your children need to play in dirt. And even get scratches and cuts and things, because it builds their immunity as an adult. They need, from microscopic all the way to the macro, and, and they need to do crazy stuff, you know? And, and if you want to hear some crazy stuff, you know, Go talk to Cody Maycumber. I mean, go, go down every hill you can find. Talk to his mother, who you need to talk to. And it's like, were these kids parented at all? Well, they were put on the edge, and they just took the edge. And boys especially, they need risk, high risk in their life. We're going to talk a little bit about that physically, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But don't be afraid to stretch them, but also don't try to make a child think like an adult. They're not going to be capable they can't think, they're very concrete thinkers, and you have to make your instructions to them concrete. And uh, you need to develop that. And, and first it's one command at a time. Then it's, I'm going to give them a two-part command. Now I'm giving you two commands. I want you to do this and that. You know, and so um, by the time they're three years old, in their third year, they should be able to do a two-part command. Do this and that. Do this first, then that and you're trying to build their capacity of concentration because now they have to do this and then remember that they have something else to do. But I don't give uh, a two-year-old, um, here's five things you need to get done before. You're just frustrating them. And their, their disobedience, quote-unquote, isn't really their fault. It's yours. That's not rebellion. That's not disobedience. It's just you gave them five things and they can only remember one or two. Right? And so you need to monitor yourself in that respect as well. And so you should be able to tell, but it's okay to just reflect on this and say, well, were they, they not do it because they didn't understand? Or did I give them too much? Did I give them something above their, their grade level? Um, and you want to give them a little bit above their grade level, but if you're going to give them stuff above their grade level, what should they be doing? What do you want them to do to show that they're stretching up? You want them to fail. Because if they never fail, you are never stretching them. That's what falling down is when you're learning to walk, right? That's failure. And you recognize that as a necessary component of learning to balance yourself and take steps is failure. And it's okay for your child to fail now and then, and in fact, it is very healthy for them because if they've never failed, they've never found where their limits are. And that's why in Word of Life clubs, um, these little ones come up and they are just like deer in a the headlight. There's those like, oh, they come into the upper kids' game time. Um, those little third graders come in and, are, oh, and it just goes zooming around them. And, and they fail all the time, and, but they pick up on it, and, sh and they get better throughout the year and better throughout the year. They start figuring out. They're watching other people, and 
Um, and I, I'm not easy on them. I don't sit there and walk them like they're lambs. They'll find it. They'll stretch. I want them to come up, and they're going to have to fall down. They're going to have to get out a lot. They're going to have to be on the losing team. They're going to have to, you know, all that because they have to fail to improve. Okay, I was a hurdler, and I got to tell you, um, my knees are bad because I failed a lot. I hit a lot of hurdles <laughs> to get better. But if I never hit a hurdle, it meant I was a really bad hurdler because it meant I was this far above the hurdle, and that's not good. It slows you down. So you got to be willing to let your child fail and not call it rebellion, and not, oh, but just recognize you pressing them, and they're going to need some time to catch up to where you want them to be. And so you're going to have to have some patience in that process. Okay, so in wisdom, um, they're going to have to grow, and growth means... Little, lots of little, little, little steps. Um, and we all want them to take these giant steps and big steps of development and maturity. And we have growth charts and all that, but it's little, little, little stuff at a time that we want to bring them up. Does that help? I've gone late again, which isn't late anymore. It's the normal time. Seven after seems to be the time. Any other questions, comments? We're going to go on next week to growing in stature. And we're going to be talking about our bodies and the physical things. And one of those Sunday nights, we are going to have a meal as part of our parenting class. We're going to have you do a meal. So we're going to have each of you by family units sit at the tables and we're going to have a meal together. Um, and talk about that aspect of so we got I got lots of interesting things planned uh, for stature uh, for the physicality that we're, we are supposed to be growing our children physically okay let's pray Lord God we do thank you for your love for us thank you again for this time we spend your word uh, and uh, just considering the role that you have us we know it's important and that our children will tend to be imitators of us help us to be genuine before them, worthy of being imitated, and that we might uh, not give them empty words while we're in disobedience, but that we might, uh, and really be deceiving them by doing that, but that we might walk in the light and be the revealers of your goodness, of righteousness, of truth, and expose darkness in our homes and in our children's lives when, it, when, it, when they are encounter it, that we might just uh, show the error of this world and of Satan and his ways not to discourage them, but to give them life. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.